some people are in their bliss and doing what they would naturally be doing if they had all their needs met, you know, and they're just having fun, they're playing. What they create actually benefits not just them, but the whole. If what we're really on this earth to do is to spin straw into gold, it's really finally to be creative and to give that to the culture, then in order to do that, you can't be living somebody else's life. If we choose to do what we love, our lives get better. If we choose to share it with others, the lives of those around us get better. If enough of us do this, the world gets better. We are most free when we are most bound to others. How oft times we go there, an unwelcome guest. You're listening to episode 735 of Unwelcome Guests. Thinking outside the box. I'm Robin Upton, and a more personal episode than usual, not containing a lot of reflection from me. I thought it was going to, but it didn't work out that way. You've heard a collection of quotes to give you a flavour of what's coming. A range of speakers, some new to the show, some regulars. We begin with the following recording. This is unusual in that this is somebody whom I've met personally. I was invited by a group of friends to the Chaos Computer Conference about which he speaks and, in my experience, can pronounce them a profoundly sound bunch. This is Mitch Altman speaking about the rise of hacker spaces in November 2012 in Brussels. I have a vision, a world full of centers of unique community, each supporting the individuals there to explore and do what they love, each an inspirational source of true education where anyone can learn what they need to live the lives they want to live. Each a vibrant hub of a local community. Each supporting the other community centers to flourish. This is what the hackerspace community is all about. And it's already happening in a huge way. And how do I know? Because this is the life I live 24-7, all day, all night, all year round. In the last 63 months, over 1,100 hackerspaces have popped up all over the planet. Um, uh, seemingly out of nowhere and seemingly in very unlikely places. Uh, you know, what is going on here? Uh, there's more popping up all the time. But what's going on is that hackerspaces provide two unique very deep universal needs. Two needs that have been way too scarce for way too long. Community and creative expression. We all evolved as a species on the planet uh, to survive in a sometimes hostile environment, supporting each other in community. We need community. It's in our DNA. One of the things we did in community was to get together to make and share cool tools. 
And just because we can now buy anything we want doesn't mean we don't need to create. We have a deep inner drive to create. It's in our DNA. Hackerspaces provide this magical combination, creative expression plus community, and brings them together, making dreams come alive. A hackerspace is a real physical space, like a storefront in L.A., or a warehouse in Detroit, um, where uh, people are supported through supportive community to explore and do what they love through hacking. Hacking is taking what is, improving upon it to the best of your ability, and sharing it. Since anything, no matter how cool, can be improved, we can hack anything. We can hack computers and electronics, of course, but also art and craft, math, science. You can hack yourself, society, the planet. We can and do hack anything. The choices we make have a powerful impact on our lives. I started my life out as a total depressed blob of a kid. But I'm now a jet-setting, crazy-haired inventor who loves my life. I started this transformation by making choices. Good choices and bad choices. I learned from my messes and successes, learning and growing, learning and growing, and learning and growing, taking what is learning to the best of my ability, and eventually sharing it. That's hacking. And it works, even if it wasn't always easy, even if it still isn't easy. But it's so rewarding. It eventually led to me making a living doing what I love, which is turning TVs off in public places. I actually invented a keychain that does this, and I make a living from it. <laughs> Life is weird. <laughs> but the, the success of TV Be Gone, an open source project, got me invited to my first hacker conference. Unlike the world around us, imagine what it might be like to be surrounded, perhaps somewhat like here, with people, almost all of whom do what they love. It's incredibly high. And that was the experience at my first hacker conference. I didn't want it to end, but like all conferences, it did. And I wanted more. And I got it in abundance a few months later at Chaos Communication Camp 2007, a huge outdoor camp um, near Berlin. And... Um, no one knew it at the time, but this was to be the birth of the hackerspace movement. At this point in history, there were only about 50 hackerspaces in the world, mostly in Germany. But all of the elements that would become part of hackerspaces everywhere were already at camp, chaos camp. Uh, there was uh, technology, of course, but also art and craft and blinking lights out the wazoo and uh, lasers and uh, people sharing enthusiastically their projects, teaching, learning, sharing, a great supportive community. And, of course, there were great talks and uh, presentations. 
One talk in particular really hit home for me. Some German hackers talked about how to start your own hackerspace. It was so obvious. I didn't have to wait. None of us had to wait for the next conference. We could have this kind of energy all day, all night, all year round at a hackerspace in my hometown. I wasn't the only one inspired by this. A bunch of us North Americans got together and we talked about this for the duration of camp. We all knew we would start hackerspaces when we got home. And we all did. And we did it the way all hackerspaces are started now. You envision a culture you want to be a part of. You put it out there, which attracts more people and strengthens the culture, which attracts more people, etc. You pick a name, you get a website, you make a logo, you uh, make stickers, you hand out stickers to anyone and everyone, you talk to anyone and everyone, and you don't shut up about it. You meet every Tuesday, and you talk about all the details to make it happen, and you play. Eventually, you then get a space. This worked really well for us at Noisebridge, the hackerspace I co-founded in San Francisco. Um, we uh, talked about it for about a year and worked out all the details, and uh, when we got our first space, it was incredibly exciting for everyone. We raised $12,000 in 24 hours to pay for rent, and we've never been in debt since. And within weeks, we had enough donations to have a full kitchen, a machine shop, a complete electronics lab, a sewing machine, or a bunch of sewing machines, uh, tables, lamps, chairs. Instantly, we were full of really cool people working on cool projects and sharing them, teaching, learning, and sharing. We had vibrant community. The hackerspaces that were started uh, similarly in other parts of North America uh, together with the existing hackerspaces established in Europe and together with uh, hackerspaces.org, a networking uh, website that a bunch of us uh, created. This served as examples for the rest of the world, and within a year there were a, over 100 new hackerspaces that popped up all over the planet and growing all the time. Uh, whenever I travel, giving talks or whatever, I look up and visit the local hackerspace. And if they want, I give a workshop doing what I love, which is teaching how to solder and how to make cool things with electronics, which for me is really fun. It's all ages, all skill levels, and people just enjoy it. I have so many kits for people to play with, and uh, it's my way of sharing what I love, and it attracts more people to hackerspaces to strengthen the community. Here's a picture of me doing a workshop at a local hackerspace here, right here in Brussels. There are several in the area of Belgium here. Uh, please check that out. I want to share with you some of the projects that I have seen at hackerspaces that all grow from people doing what they love. And like most projects at hackerspaces, they're all totally open source so people can share and innovate from them. This I found when I was first invited to my uh, first hacker conference. I looked online to see what they were about, and I found this project which hooked me into the scene forever. The city of Berlin gave access to this building to the Chaos Computer Club, a very well-respected hacker group in Germany. They put a bright light in every window, and they put it under computer control to turn the building into a giant computer screen. They put a bunch of uh, software to control it online that's open source, inviting the whole world to hack 
click on it. It started off with just playing an image on the building, quickly grew so it would play animated sequences and scrolling text, and eventually led to the first two people who called in on their cell phones could play Pong on the building. (laughs) This is awesome public art. A few people at Noisebridge decided it would be really cool to have a snapshot of the planet. Uh, $250, that's all it took, and six weeks later, they put up a balloon into near space and got this picture. They documented it all online, and after hundreds of more balloon launches at hackerspaces around the world, the documentation is now easy enough that high school students can do this totally on their own and win science fairs, which just happened a few months ago. This and other things led to the International Hackerspace Space <laughs> program with the very ambitious goal of a hacker on the moon by the year 2023. Will we make that goal? It doesn't matter. Think of all that will be gained and learned along the way, just like the first space program. It'll be cool to see. Uh, MakerBot is a 3D printer. This all grew from one person at NYC Resistor in New York thinking it would be really cool for, uh, to have a robot that he made that would make things. And this grew to a very successful 3D printer company. It can print out anything, any object from your imagination into a real thing you can hold in plastic. And they have an online uh, website where anyone can upload and download um, any object. And they can print it out at uh, a MakerBot or any other 3D printers around. These are cheap enough that every hackerspace pretty much in the world has one and lots of other people. As well as uh, 3D printers, a lot of hackerspaces have laser cutters, and these are very sophisticated machines. You can cut very intricate, precision parts to make sophisticated projects. On the other hand, these few people at Hive 76 in Philadelphia decided they would just make business cards by engraving their uh, company business on thin, dried slices of meat. It was popular enough that a lot of other people wanted, now they have a company that they do it for other people. This is pretty awesome. Uh, Some people at Artisans Asylum in the Boston area thought it would be really cool to ride on top of giant robots. Uh, And they're building this thing now. Uh, This is uh, 1,800 pounds, and it's big enough to uh, walk over cars. Last year, after the disaster in Fukushima in Japan, uh, people were very dissatisfied with all of the lack of information coming from the Japanese government. So the Tokyo hackerspace made do-it-yourself Geiger counters that they would give away, and people everywhere could measure radiation levels. One problem, however, is that no one knew what uh, normal radiation levels were. So uh, people in uh, crash space, hackerspace in L.A., started SafeCast, a nonprofit group where they would give away these do-it-yourself Geiger counters to anyone in the world, and it would automatically upload all the radiation information to an open-source database that anyone can use for any purpose for the rest of the Internet, uh, eternity, hopefully. And um, this is citizen science in action. Uh, One of the ways hackerspaces innovate is taking things that have been traditionally up till now been very expensive and making them inexpensive and accessible. I think we're going to be learning more about this later, but BioCurious is a biology hackerspace in the San Francisco area, and people there made an open PCR so that now it's an open source PCR machine that anyone can replicate DNA on their desktop. 
And finally, this is Code Hero, came out of Noisebridge. It's a really fun uh, computer game with intense graphics that anyone, any skill level, any age can play this game and just by playing it, learn to program and make their own computer games. Well, these are just a few, very few of the many, many incredible projects that come out of hackerspaces, growing simply by people doing what they love. And um, uh, there are many things that grow from hackerspaces that can improve your life and improve the lives of people around the world. There are two things that I want to point out that I think are very important. One is that real education happens at hackerspaces. As the education bureaucracies around the world continue to fail us, hackerspaces will continue to fill in more of the void, where people teach because they love teaching, where people learn because they love learning, all geared for li towards living the life you want to live. And secondly, local economy grows at hackerspaces. Hackerspaces provide supportive community for exploring and doing what you love. And think about it. If you do what you love, chances are really good other people are going to love it too. And in a capitalist society, if, you, if people love what you do, they will pay you to do it. Many companies have grown this way, including mine. And if your company grows and you need help, you can hire from the local community. This creates local economy that works for everyone. The future of economy everywhere is creative, and hackerspaces are a fantastic place to explore your creativity. <sighs> there are many... Uh, well, let me say this. I hope you see now that hackerspaces really are cool. And I hope you may want to check one out. There may be one near you. Just simply check online and see. If there's not one near you, start one. It's the only way hackerspaces happen. It's the only way they've ever happened. People like you started them. So get to it. Your hometown needs a hackerspace. And there's no right and wrong way to do it. Just whatever works for you. There's so many ways to do it. Um, I'm going to show you one example that is near and dear to me, uh, Noisebridge, which I co-founded. We are um, a nonprofit, consensus decision-making. We have one rule and one rule only, which is be excellent to each other. Membership is open to anyone, any age, uh, but you don't need to be a member to do anything at Noisebridge. You don't need to be a member to take classes. You don't need to be a member to teach classes. You don't need to be a member to use all of our tools. You don't even need to be a member to have a key at Noisebridge. I happen to have some Noisebridge keys here, if anyone wants one. See me afterwards and take one. And please use it. I am totally serious. You are always welcome at Noisebridge. And wherever you go, please look up the local hackerspace. I have a lot of keys. Online. These are the 1,106 hackerspaces that exist now in the world listed on hackerspaces.org. 
Wherever you go, whenever you travel, please look up and visit the local hackerspace. You are invited to do so. Meet new friends. Explore and create community that works for you. We all need community to thrive in our lives. At hackerspaces around the world, we have found ways of creating community that works. The world is looking to us. At hackerspaces, we have supportive community for exploring what you love. If we choose to do what we love, our lives get better. If we choose to share it with others, the lives of those around us get better. If enough of us do this, the world gets better. It is up to you and you alone what you choose to do with the time of your life. Please choose well. Amen to that. This is a Carpe Diem episode. I hope it will encourage you to get on and do the things that you want to do to express your deepest and most creative desires, not to be held back by any type of mental blockages. And we've got Alan Watts to inject a slightly philosophical note into the show at this point. That what I want, basically, what I really want is what you want. And I don't know what you want. Surprise me. But that's my, that's the kinship between I and thou. So when I ask, I go right down to the question, which we started with. What do I want? The answer is I don't know. When Bodhidharma was asked, who are you? Which is another form of the same question. He said, I don't know. Planting flowers to which the butterflies come. Bodhidharma says, I know not. I don't know what I want. But when you don't know what you want, you've reached the state of desirelessness. When you really don't know, you see, there's a, there's a beginning stage of not knowing and there's an ending stage of not knowing. In the beginning stage, you don't know what you want because you haven't thought about it or you've only thought superficially. And then when you, somebody forces you to think about it and go through and say, yeah, I think I'd like this, I think I'd like that, I think I'd like the other, that's the middle stage. And then you get beyond that. Say, is that what I really want? In the end you say, no, I don't think that's it. I might be satisfied with it for a while and I wouldn't turn my nose up at it. But it's not really what I want. Why don't you really know what you want? Two reasons that you don't really know what you want. Number one, you have it. Number two, you don't know yourself because you never can. The Godhead is never an object of its own knowledge. Just as a knife doesn't cut itself, fire doesn't burn itself, light doesn't illumine itself. It's always an endless mystery to itself. I don't know. And this I don't know, uttered in the infinite interior 
of the spirit. This I don't know is the same thing as I love, I let go, I don't try to force or control. It's the same thing as humility. And so the Upanishads say, if you think that you understand Brahman, you do not understand and you have yet to be instructed further. If you know that you do not understand, then you truly understand. For the Brahman is unknown to those who know it, and known to those who know it not. And the principle is that any time you, as it were, voluntarily let up control, in other words, cease to cling to yourself, you have an access of power. Because you're wasting energy all the time in self-defense, trying to manage things, trying to force things to conform to your will. The moment you stop doing that, that wasted energy is available. And therefore, you are, in that sense, having that energy available, you are one with the divine principle. You have the energy. When you're trying, however, to act as if you were God, that is to say you don't trust anybody and you're the dictator and you have to keep everybody in line, you lose the divine energy because what you're doing is simply defending yourself. So then the principle is the more you give it away, the more it comes back. Now you say, I don't have the courage to give it away. I'm afraid. And you can only overcome that by realizing you better give it away because there's no way of holding on to it. The meaning of the fact, you see, that everything is dissolving constantly, that we're all falling apart, we're all in a process of constant death, and that uh, the worldly hope men set their hearts upon turns ashes or it prospers and like snow upon the desert's dusty face lighting a little hour or two is gone, you know, all that Omar Khayyam jazz. <laughs> You know, the cloud-cut towers, the gorgeous palaces, the great globe itself, I, all which it inherits, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. All falling apart. Everything is. That's the, the great assistance to you. See, that, that fact that everything is in decay is your helper. That is allowing you that you don't have to let go because there's nothing to hold on to. <laughs> it's achieved for you in other words by the process of nature so once you see that uh, you just don't have a prayer and it's all washed up and that you will vanish and leave not a rack behind and you really get with that suddenly you find you have the power this enormous access of energy but it's not power that came to you because you grabbed it, came in entirely the opposite way. And power that comes to you in that opposite way is power with which you can be trusted. Now, I should refer new listeners at this stage to episode number 523, when Ivan Illich predicts a sudden collapse 
of the illusion of social power. I suggest that that might be exactly coincident with a mass turning away from the money system in favor of more democratic and more truly representative systems of aligning offers and requests. Now we continue with the following section of an interview of Professor Robert Jensen, and this was broadcast on Latin Waves in June 2015. We live in a world today where, you know, public discourse has become a tool used to create stories that direct us in a world where we're told, you know, capitalism is the only way to organize our society. For instance, the war can be just and that invasions are righteous. And so there's a lot of things that unless we are really aware of, you know, how is it that that story is being framed? How is it that that story is being uh, informed? Um, we, we feel lost. We, we're deliberately being misguided. Can we talk a little bit about the need for us to not only be able to be curious about our world, but how do we come to that small T truths that connect the dots and help us make a, a, a story that, that makes sense to us, that is in alignment with who we are? Well, I think your use of the word story is important because when we think of the news, um, the news of the day, the events in the world that are important, we should always remember that there's a bigger story behind it. Take one of the examples you used, capitalism. Uh, whatever the story of the day, whatever the news story of the day, whether it's interest rates going up or the budget or taxes or whatever it might be, there's a bigger story behind it. And, and one of the key elements of that story in the modern world, in the West, in the developed world especially, but essentially everywhere, is that capitalism is a sort of natural state of being. Well, uh, you know, a, a, a simple inquiry <laughs> reveals pretty quickly that's not true. Capitalism is a product of history. It's a product of choices made really over the last two or three centuries. It's not a natural state of affairs. But if you can tell this bigger story always that capitalism is natural, then there's no way to critique it. And the news stories of the day have to be dealt with within that capitalist frame. So always going back and asking, what are these bigger stories being told? Uh, you mentioned uh, war and, and the whole idea of just war. Uh, if you look at the contemporary Middle East, where a lot of the stories about conflict are emanating right now, the, the question of Syria, the idea of bringing peace and stability and justice to Syria is not easy. Let's not be naive about this. But the assumption behind a lot of the news stories is that the West, led by the United States primarily, but including the European nations, even Canada. The assumption is that we make the decisions about what level of violence to use to bring that peace and stability and justice to Syria. There's a, a, a sort of larger story about the inherent moral superiority of the West uh, and the right of, therefore, the, the West to make those decisions. That's the big story we have to contest. So the news of the day is important, but the bigger stories are even, I think, in some ways more important. When I was thinking about what it means for me to be able to understand the story behind the story, 
I often think about, you know, the colonial wound that we all have been born into and uh, that we never speak about. Because if you're in university or if you're in school, sometimes you hear things like we're in a post-colonial era. And it sounds romantic to think that it's post, that, you know, it's not the same. So what kind of questions should we be asking us when we take this idea that imperialism was something of the past, that colonial power is something of the past? and that we've now transcended or somehow evolved out of that wound of racial... Yeah, Yeah, that's a great point because, of course, the notion of colonialism, you know, mainly out of Europe, let's say, the colonial powers literally taking control of other parts of the world, especially in the Americas, let's say, the New World. Well, that condition has, of course, changed and we are post-colonial in some sense. So the countries once ruled by Spain in South America are no longer ruled by Spain. The countries in Africa once ruled by the British or the French or the Germans or the Dutch are no longer ruled by those countries. So in that sense, of course, we are post-colonial. But there's a couple of really important questions you're raising. One is, of course, colonialism was used to describe the direct control, political control, by those European states over the other lands. But Although that has changed, the economic relationships are largely unchanged, so that the economies, or the former colonial world, are still very much controlled out of the West, out of Europe, the United States, for instance. So the question of imperialism is not just about, you know, what kind of direct rule a colonial state might use, but it's how the effective sovereignty of a a people is controlled, and that can be done economically as well. I think there's an even deeper way in which we've not transcended the colonial mindset, as you put it. One is, remember, when when Europeans came, let's just talk about Canada and the United States, North America. When Europeans came, uh, one of the arguments to justify European colonialism was that the land uh, was not being used, that indigenous people, because they weren't exploiting the land in the same way that Europeans understood that, meant that that the land was, in a sense, empty. Of course, there were people here, the indigenous people were here, but because they weren't exploiting the the resources uh, in the same way Europeans thought they should be, uh, they, in a sense, had no claim. And that colonial mindset about how to exploit the land, the water, and the air, uh, that's still very much with us. In fact, the entire world is basically based, at this point, on that conception of of exploitation of, of what we typically call nature. In that sense, we're still locked into the colonial mindset no matter where we live. That's an important reminder, I think, of what we're up against uh, and how things can change on the surface and underlying dynamics still can be very much in place. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the way power becomes axiomatic. You know, it it justifies itself, right? It becomes self-justifying. So in the case of Latin America, if you're growing up indigenous, you know, it is assumed that your own um, destiny to be brought into slavery, you know, reflects your inability, your inferiority to the colonizers, right? And so it becomes this, uh, this privilege that... Uh, builds upon itself, and over time, uh, the womb becomes internalized. So rather than seeing the history of 
rapacity and the violence, you know, that, that took place, the genocides and the struggles, um, all we see is ourselves as, as the reason for our own demise, for our own wounds, for our own poverty. There is this story that, that, that unfolds and it, it becomes retold and told. And over time, you know, no one even remembers where the story began. We just know that poor people are poor because they're lazy or, you know, that, that's the story that, that sounds, uh, palatable yep. to people who want to justify the system of privilege as it exists. So what would you say to those who have been wounded by too many repetitions of that same story of repression and oppression? Um, how do we break out of it? Yeah, well, that's a great point. And, you know, throughout modern history, people have observed that uh, one of the ways that uh, an oppressor group, whether it's Europeans coming to the Americas or whatever, one of the ways they maintain control is through control of the mind of the oppressed. Uh, it's what we, as you point out, we often refer to as internalized oppression, uh, where you start to believe the story of the people who have dominated you. Uh, if you think of you know, some of the key uh, political social movements of the uh, middle of the 20th century, you know, what we call in the U.S. usually the 60s, uh, this was a central feature. So think about the the black liberation struggle in the United States uh, and the assertion that black is beautiful. Well, that was a very uh, real and concrete reminder to people of African descent that white beauty standards were, were not the only way to understand yourself. And so that black is beautiful for many people literally meant looking in the mirror and remembering that you are beautiful. Uh, it may sound trivial in, in some sense, but it was a you know an important um, recognition along with more traditional political slogans and, and policies. Of course, we, with indigenous people in the United States, and again, I, I typically speak mostly about the U.S. experience, not knowing Canada as well, but the American Indian movement in the United States was not just a political movement, you know, arguing for certain kinds of policies. It was a reclaiming of indigenous traditions. In fact, people referred to themselves as traditionals, those who would no longer accept the idea that Indians should become white to achieve their, you know, greatest potential. Uh, and that was very much a part of, of that struggle as well. You can even think about it in, in feminist terms, that a lot of uh, feminism was helping women understand that men's definition of them was not the only way to understand themselves. So, you know, this is part of the struggle of every movement that tries to challenge what you pointed out is the naturalizing of domination. And, and by that, I simply mean the fact that Every group of people that's ever tried to dominate another group has tried to make that seem natural, as you pointed out. And fighting that kind of seems obvious once you say it, but it's amazing how that naturalizing of domination, as you're pointing out, can kind of weave itself into the way we think about the world, whether we're on top or on the bottom of that particular dynamic. You know, I was reading in your book, and you write, we are most free when we are most bound to others. Can you talk a little bit about what this means for you and this idea of that the struggle out of this colonized mind, this internalized yeah. oppression, um, it's, inter it's entangled, it's intertwined with yeah. all of us. Yeah. Well, that's probably one of the most single most important uh, realizations I think we can come to in the modern world that's defined especially by a capitalist notion of what it means to be a person. And, and, and that's another important point, that, you know, behind every political philosophy, every political movement, there's 
there's a sense of what it means to be a person, what it means to be human. And in contemporary America, defined by corporate capitalism and mass consumption, you know, people are thought of as being individuals, discrete and completely independent. And in that conception, you are part of a society only to the degree you choose to do it. Your identity is as an individual. Well, that's a very idiosyncratic way of thinking about being human, very modern uh, for most of human history. People really didn't think of themselves primarily as individuals, but as part of groups, your identity came from your place, going back to hunting and gathering societies, your place in a band-level society, you know, a society that probably had no more than 50 to 150 people in it. Well, that's dramatically different than this individual, this obsession with the individual we have in the modern world. So when I wrote, we have to realize we are most free when we are most bound to others, the, it's a challenge to that notion that freedom is in independence, in, in your separation from others. No human being's life makes any sense separate. We aren't separate. We are social beings. And we get a lot of our sense of ourselves from the surroundings, from not only our social group, but also our place in the larger natural world. And so freedom doesn't come when you're detached from people. Freedom comes from, in my point of view, from understanding your relationship again, not only to other people, but to that larger living world. And for me personally, who you know, someone who grew up with that very intense sense of individualism, it was a real struggle to recognize that the key is to human life isn't independence. It's a recognition of interdependence, interdependence with others and with what we tend to call nature. I was thinking about, you know, this interconnectedness and this, this desire to be in community and how painful exile can be. And I wonder if you could talk, because you've written extensively on, you know, the, the way the violence against women has also become naturalized. And so for me, the question is also, how do we create spaces that are both um, bounded, but at the same time, recognize the inherent value of each person, the uniqueness and beauty that each each brings to the whole. Um, and the reason I ask you this question is because as a woman, you are raised to care for everybody. You are raised to be the caregiver, you know. And so there's a lot of oppression that has been naturalized and that I feel this sentence taken by itself could be taken to naturalize that process. You know, women are the birthers of, you know, life, and so they should do all the housework and they should care for all the children. And so it becomes this naturalized story that that's the culture. That's our culture. We're people who do everything as a group, and so that's the role of the women. How yeah. do you uh, speak to your female students who who see this this call to be bonded and at the same time want to create some spaces where possibilities can emerge for women? Right. Well, let's go back, because I think these two questions are related. First, to that notion about um, recognizing our interdependence doesn't mean we're all, you know, clones of each other, that we're somehow just kind of robots and identical. Uh, one feminist philosopher I'm fond of many years ago wrote a, uh, an essay where she talked about the struggle to for individuality without individualism. And by that, she meant the kind of honoring of individual differences that you're talking about, because, of course, we all are distinct and different, and we all bring different kind of qualities to the common life. And so we don't want to erase individuality. We don't want to erase individual variation among human beings. It would be a pretty boring world if we did that. 
it's this obsession with individualism, this assertion that we are first and foremost separate that we're trying to challenge, not the idea that people are different. Obviously, people are different, and that's a good thing. So this struggle, I think, is is encapsulated very nicely in this phrase, the search for individuality without individualism. Uh, now, the way that plays out in gender, uh, you know, it's it's an interesting story that patriarchy tells, especially versions of patriarchy, I think, that are rooted in religious ideas. Uh, because if you look at that argument that comes from more traditional religious sectors, they claim that both men and women, both husband and wife in the traditional family that they always value, both of them have obligations. Right? The man is the head of the household, and he has obligations to provide, to lead, to to guide. Um, you know, And the woman has different obligations to to care for the household and all sorts of things. And uh, first of all, we recognize that because there is that individuality, that you can't typecast people so easily. You can't say all men fit this role and all women fit that role because there's individual variation. Um, it, it really is rather stifling when you have no choice in the way that you live your life like that. But the other thing is, of course, if you put men in that role and say they have obligations, but you give them all the power to decide well, the obligations are not going to play out equally, as you're pointing out. And and men are naturally, I think, get, when given that kind of power, going to gravitate toward the misuse of that power, just as any group of human beings given a, a kind of unnatural power over others in this sense is likely to abuse it. So what we learn is that, you know, from, from this example, I think what we learn is that, you know, being human is difficult. It's a struggle. Um, we are individual, yet we are part of a group. Uh, we want to, to fit into roles in a society that help make society stable, but those roles can be stifling, so there's got to be flexibility and creativity in them. I mean, all of this is just a reminder that, you know, being human and having the big brain and having the capacity that we're exhibiting right here, the ability to, you know, have a conversation that's, that's linguistically complex and intellectually uh, complex that that's all very exciting. It also makes life hard sometimes, and that's what we have to struggle with. But the answer is in the struggle, not in pretending this is all very simple, as traditional Beautiful. religion, for instance, wants to do. Now, for one last perspective on the desperation, which is modern American life, we hear from Morris Berman. This is an interview in 2014 by Judith Regan, after he'd published his book, Spinning Straw into Gold, Straight talk for troubled times. Americans are really suffering. They're really, really hurting. They're angry and anxious and depressed, and there's a lot of pain really close to the surface. And frankly, I don't go online in a single day where I don't find that some shooting has occurred I know. in the United States. You know, and it's not, you know, curiously enough, I'm with the NRA on this. I don't think it's guns. If We're so unhappy that if we were not blowing each other out of the water with guns, we'd be carving each other up with knives. Yeah. That, that's how bad things have gotten. And there's a kind of thing that, that I believe personally that if you have a culture that is based on inauthenticity, which is what I feel our culture is about. So, you know, uh, Kim Kardashian's tushy or Miley Cyrus's tongue are actually topics of discussion and, and for people to get excited about. A culture that's so soaking in authenticity makes people crazy because they can't live their real lives. And that's what success 
is defined as in the United States, and people are constantly chasing the American dream, and the result is that they're sick as dogs. You know, George Carlin, may God rest his soul, once remarked, they call it the American dream because you've got to be asleep to believe it. <laughs> and that's the truth. Yeah, yeah how, do, how would one define the American dream today? Well, it always there are a number of characteristics. In, in one of the books I wrote uh, just, I don't know, about three or four years ago, it's called A Question of Values, and it's a collection of essays, and half of those essays are about life in the United States. And one of them talks about uh, what I call unconscious programming in America that goes back hundreds of years, and it's why we can't seem to step out of what we're doing. And you hear that unconscious programming coming out of the mouth of the president or just people in their daily conversation. And um, these include things like we're the chosen people, which is frequently called American exceptionalism, for example. Uh, another one is extreme individualism. You can and should do it by yourself. You're Clint Eastwood. You know, mm-hmm. uh, It's a real formula to make people sick. No community at all. And then one of the other ones that I think relates to the American dream in particular is the notion of an endless frontier. And historians have written volumes and volumes about this. It started out with the historian Frederick Jackson Turner in 1893, who gave a talk at the American Historical Association called The Endless Frontier in American History, in which he basically said that in in 1890, the census, the U.S. uh, Bureau of Census, closed the geographical frontier. It said we had filled out the United States. But there was always a technological frontier or an economic frontier known as imperialism, or a psychological frontier. And so the idea is to always be expanding such that the goal of any American is simply more. Right. You know, there's a film, Key Largo, with Edward G. Robinson and Humphrey Bogart, obviously from many years ago, in which Edward G. Robinson plays the gangster, and Humphrey Bogart, of course, plays the good guy, and he confronts uh, Edward G., the crook, and he says, what is it you want? Do you know what you want? And Edward G. Robinson says, yes, I do. More. The problem with it is once you get more, then there's more. Right. So finally, you've got, what is John John McCain owned 13 houses? At one point, he lost track of the number of properties he actually had. How? I don't get it. Is he going to get cloned 12 times? Right. So he can live in each of those houses simultaneously? I mean, what people, all the studies that have been done worldwide, not just America, but worldwide on happiness have indicated that once you've covered the basics, having more doesn't increase your happiness. Right. It lies somewhere else. And yet, you know, when when Thomas Jefferson wrote Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, everybody, those are code words in the 18th century, everybody understood that pursuit of happiness meant pursuit of property. And all the founding fathers died wealthy. You know, I mean, they they did it. I mean, George Washington had something like, you know, died with $2 million, which today would be about... $2 billion. Yeah, $2 billion, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. You know, and um, but that was the that was how they saw the world, and that was they imparted to, to Americans that it's every man or woman for themselves, but yeah. the idea is to maximize what you own. Well, I don't know how many cars I can drive simultaneously, how many suits I can wear simultaneously. You know, finally, it's all just symbolic stuff, and it definitely doesn't increase your enjoyment in life. I mean, that was why I book with the, the epigraph is from the um, British Victorian social reformer. Uh, John, John Ruskin. 
Yeah, there is no wealth but life. You know that is what true is, wealth. Yeah, I mean, it, what is the quality of your life? It can't. It's, you know, getting another Mercedes Benz is not going to do it. Yeah. Well, so the American dream, which is wrapped up in this materialistic orgy, uh, one of the things we have to look at is at what expense to others. Aside from the fact that it gives your life no meaning to have twelve houses, aside from that fact, what is the price? that others have to pay for you to acquire all of this stuff for yourself. We're looking at this now in terms of the environment, in terms of world economics, in terms of so much. Um, you know, what is the end game of capitalism if we keep going like this? Yeah, that, that's where you, you just spot on. I mean, you just hit the mark there. There was a film with Jeremy Irons a couple of years ago called Margin Call, which was about the crash of 2008 and, and basically how these people were living. And at the end, Jeremy Irons gives a talk and he says, there is no point. It's just accumulation for the sake of accumulation. And, of course, the thing that hovers around this are the things you just mentioned. One is, uh, environmentally speaking, uh, the problem with the American dream or any, any concept of endless frontier is that there is no such thing as uh, infinite acquisition in a finite world, I mean, we will run out of oil. That right. will happen down the road. And frankly, I just looking around in my house, I see a pen or a plate or a book cover. Those are all made out of petroleum. You know, mm. I mean, it's, that's where it comes. Where, you know, so what is it we're going to do when we really run out of that? Um, that's one thing, an environmental question. But the other thing is that, I mean, you can't tell me that the poverty in the third world is unrelated to the wealth in the first world. Uh, even when you have a situation where 1% of the American population owns 47% of the wealth or something like that within the nation, and just recently reading the statistics that the wealthiest 400 individuals uh, in the United States uh, have wealth equivalent to the bottom 180 million. I mean, it's Curious to use that, a phrase, bottom, bottom 180 million. Right, but, right. But, but 400 people have the wealth of more, you know, like 60% of the country. So that's, that's a, it's a very bizarre and sick kind of arrangement. But finally, when you think of the cost to the third world, that something like 2 billion people live on less than a dollar a day and 3 billion less than, on less than $2 a day, and what life must be like when your water is, you know, contaminated, and uh, basically you watch people around you starve. And what what's going on in the first world that's producing that, um, we have set things up from a long time ago that free trade really means we exploit the third world for our benefit. Yeah. Well, if you just do a study of Walmart and the billions and billions in profit that they have every year off the backs of people who are manufacturing the goods very often in third world countries that have all these issues... And also their very workers, uh, you know, whom they pay in a very meager way. A lot of them are part-time employees with no benefits. And the government has to subsidize um, their economic lives because they can't afford to eat. That's right. And yet right. the family is making $17 billion a year in profit. I mean, yeah. that's, that's when you look at the equation and say, what's wrong with this picture? Yeah, and and, <laughs> and I mean, what does this mean and how does that give any of these people meaning right i mean it's it's that's why i said that the money after a certain point becomes symbolic right so how does one justify it off of the backs of so many 
to create such human suffering. That's not a problem. That's not a problem for the wealthy in the United States or elsewhere. Basically, the ideology is um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness means that there is no ultimate end to wealth, and the good life is that every each of us has the opportunity to expand our resources uh, indefinitely and go ahead and do it. That's the American dream. Of course, it ignores the fact that the playing field isn't even, and most people are start, not starting off with those types of opportunities that make it possible. And um, so, so finally, the I mean, ask anybody in the Tea Party or the GOP for that matter. I mean, basically, they really feel that the redistribution of wealth is theft. And a healthy life is that everybody, you know, gets a chance to roll the dice and and uh, and pursue their dream. And so, uh, any anything like redistribution or consideration of other issues to them, um, I, it's not a surprise to me that uh, Alan Greenspan was a protege of Anne Rand. You know, that's not a surprise to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the solution? You have a lot of people who are out there listening to this show. They probably share these views or may not share these views. but And I'm sure a lot of them know that there's gross inequality. They feel that there's no family life, community life, tradition. They may be working for corporations that create a situation that's do or die. And if you don't meet your numbers and go along with the agenda and sell the antidepressants and push these stupid electronic cigarettes and you know get people to drink Coca-Cola, if you don't do your job, you're out on the street starving. Your children are starving. And sure. so they stay on that conveyor belt, even though they may feel that it's an inauthentic life, even though they may feel that it's not quite right, but they don't know what to do. Right. People feel right. trapped by the circumstances of their lives. So what do you say to them? Well, the first thing is that in terms of solutions, we should talk about there are solutions that are real in the sense that they're, if you recognize everything that you just said, Judith, if we recognize that and we say, well, then the problems are structural, then the only, I mean, sociologically, the only way to solve structural problems is, is, is with structural solutions. And then we have to say, okay, leaving the individual solutions aside for a moment, just looking at social solutions, what's available? Well, one is armed revolution, which is a good path to take if you enjoy chewing on steel, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, the Another one um, is the belief that, which I don't think is going to work, that if you elect the right people, uh, somehow uh, they're going to institute a different type of regime. Everybody believed that about Obama in 2008, and look what a complete failure uh, he was. He never has any sim- any sim- His friends are the rich, and that's who he's you know passing the money along to. So it's it's um, you know that 60s graffito that went uh, if elections could change the system they would be declared illegal. You know we have to really grasp that and understand that going to the voting booth is not about changing the system. And so if those things structurally are really impossible and you say, well, there is no way of changing the larger machinery, then dealing with on the social or large political level, what has to happen, in my view, is that this this scenario has to play out. In other words, I think there may be hope, but we're talking several decades down the line, let's say 30 or 40 years, and we're talking that we have to get to a point where the system implodes. Now, it's doing that in a slow-motion way right now. It is imploding. Uh, We have a um, national debt of more than $17 I mean, think about that. In a few years, the interest on the national debt 
will be about a trillion a year. The interest right. on it. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, the system is imploding. China and Japan holds three trillion in U.S. securities. All they have to do is pull the plug, and we'd be finished. Um, they don't do that because they want to get their money back. But you know, they, they they could do it if they wanted. And um, we're in a situation where it's no longer viable. What will happen on the far side of that is what I talk about. And what I talk about, again, these are not individual solutions, but structural ones. 